Well, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure for me to, to be able to preach this morning. I haven't preached actually in some, some time. The, uh, and I'm glad we're, we're following the lectionary, so that's what we've been doing this month. And uh, probably in, in October, when uh, Matthew Tinkin joins us as our interim pastor, he may start a new uh, series. And uh, last week he did um, Romans 13, second half, and I'm going to pick up uh, from that in Matthew 14. The, um, Matt, the, the book of Romans, for me, has a very special place, actually, personally, and, and this will, I think it's particularly important with all of Paul's uh, writing to put him in his own context, in other words, to interpret him in terms of his own words. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, and really we don't need to go beyond today, uh, hardly. We will some, but mostly the context we need will be in the book of Romans itself. I became a Christian when I was, so I'm, my name is Fred Skiff, I'm one of the elders here, and um, I'm a professor of physics, actually, at the university, and uh, my first 20 years I spent, uh, you know, growing up in, as a materialist, and uh, I became a Christian from reading the Bible, and I was very skeptical, and so I and I'd only heard negative things about the church, so I didn't wasn't inclined. So um, I'd heard bad things about the organized church, so I was the uh, disorganized church, I guess you'd say. And uh, the Lord finally uh, showed me that I really needed to get involved in the church, and so even though I was somewhat of a loner, the. Uh, the Lord brought people into my life who had a huge impact, and I'll mention this just partly just to encourage you. You never know the impact of something you do when you're encouraging somebody. Uh, the, uh, in that church, the, the pastor um, just challenged, challenged the congregation to uh, memorize the book of Romans. And uh, I took him up on it. And uh, the thing was, as a newborn Christian, I found the world a very confusing place. There were all these denominations. I knew nothing about denominations. There were all these opinions about these things. And, and actually, as, as a student of, of physics, I knew that some Christians saw me as suspect. Like I, and the, the, this, our text this morning deals with welcoming. And uh, so I didn't know, because there were people who said, well, you can't. You can't mix science and faith. That's, that's, uh, Paul addresses that indirectly here in our text today. And so reading Romans, actually, and memorizing it, that was my theological education. And I found that a lot of the, the, the arguments over Paul were from people who just take a verse here or there and go running in various directions or bring in other you know, philosophies or ideologies. But if you understand Paul in terms of himself... And his references, which are numerous to the Old Testament, uh, which he, I, I think, had memorized. He would, that would be the normal thing because he was uh, a Pharisee after all. And uh, that actually he makes tremendous sense. And, uh, and for me, it was, it was life-changing. And so our text here in the latter part of Romans, there are exhortations. Our text this morning is an exhortation for us to do something. But really, you shouldn't read it except in the light of everything that Paul said up to that point. Go right back to the beginning. So, let's go back to the beginning. 
and I won't have time to do the whole thing, but the, um, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Actually, that would be better translated nations because he's addressing Jews as well as Gentiles. Among all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, I'll have to apologize. I'm going to be using the NIV text because the ESV didn't exist 40 years ago. And I was, I was preparing this sermon. I realized that it was 40 years ago that, um, that that pastor challenged me to memorize the text. But it's interesting. Paul is calling. So what is Paul's purpose? He just stated it. To an obedience that comes from faith. So there's something that we need to do and there's a certain way we have to do it. And it comes through faith. So the, um, so let's listen again. And I'll, uh, the, the ESV and NIV uh, on this uh, passage are very close, so it's not a big deal. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything should not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him, or welcomed him in ESV. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we need to look at this in terms of everything Paul has, has said uh, before. But one thing right away that I noticed when I read this years ago was all those people have been telling me, you can't be a scientist and a Christian because faith and science are at war. That's not what Paul thinks. In fact, faith here, he's saying whose faith is weak. In other words, but what is he talking about? He's talking about people, the way they live, whether or not they eat meat or not, or whether or not uh, they observe certain special days. That's their faith. Their faith is their understanding. Their faith and their science are going together. In fact, what I came to understand finally is that not only are faith and science not enemies, science rests on faith. And faith rests on science in a certain way because the word science just simply means knowledge. And so here Paul's saying that the faith these people have, that if your faith is weak, it's because you don't understand, in this case, it had to do with the freedom that we have in Christ. So it turns out, and Paul explains this later in chapter 14, that, you know, all food is clean and you can receive it with thanks. But... Um, we have to think about how we use that freedom. So, being um, the weakness of the faith in this case is just simply not fully understanding uh, the freedom that we have in Christ. 
But now, you know, we shouldn't be dismissive because Paul himself in Corinthians warns the Corinthians, and apparently there were people who were Christians and they were dabbling in idolatry. And he says, you know, uh, you, can you, you can't partake in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Uh, you know, and so he categorically says, you don't want to have anything to do with idolatry. And so I, it's totally understandable that somebody would say, you know what? It, what happens, and this is what happened in Roman markets, food, the meat that you would find at the counter had very, very often been offered as a sacrifice to some idol. And uh, that was just a normal practice. And then they would take the meat and, and sell it. And so uh, someone would go to the market and they're like, oh, maybe somebody offered this meat in sacrifice to an idol. And I don't want anything to do with idolatry. So I'm just not going to eat meat. Um, you know, it's a, it's a... Now, in this case, Paul says, you know, I, I think that as a person grows, they're going to understand that they have that freedom. But don't destroy them by... Uh, by telling them, you know, by mocking them or, or looking down, don't look down at them and despise them. But then again, there would be the, the possibility of the person who does that, and then here in comes this other, uh, maybe one of the elders in the church, and buys meat and eats it, and then that person is saying, oh man, what a sinner. He doesn't realize that this, is, this has been offered to an idol, and he's judging uh, the, his brother. And Paul's saying both of these you're going down the wrong road. And so, now, it's interesting that, I mean, these, the issues here are, they're important. They're things that we need to think about. How does our life affect what we do? So it's not that this disputable matters are not things like, well, let's just pay no attention to disputable matters. No, we have to engage in them. In fact, Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind down so that means that we should actually think through what we do. But it has to do really with how we, how, we, how we treat one another. In fact, Paul himself, so he's saying disputable matters, that implies that there are matters that really are somewhat categorical. So Paul has said, well, except people, even if their faith is weak and they're doing things you don't think are quite making sense with respect to the gospel, um, so you might say, well, let's just, uh, does that mean, Paul, that we should just say everybody's a believer and doesn't matter because they believe in something and uh, it, let's not argue. And uh, Paul has a lot of uh, expressions in his writings and I'm tempted to use one of them. Uh, so when, Paul, when someone takes what Paul says and then goes off the deep end with it, he says, certainly not. And so uh, it does matter what we believe. So let's, let's go back, in fact, and look at some of the things that Paul says uh, that are somewhat categorical, and that he uses these categorical statements. After, in chapter 1, after he gave that introduction, he explains why the world's such a huge mess, why people are killing each other and violence and there's all kinds of destruction. It's because God has given us over to our own ways. Then in chapter 2, he says, yeah, and Jews... Don't, don't brag, we're no better. In fact, the Gentiles often put us to shame because the law of God's written in their hearts and they'll often do the right thing, showing that God has put the law in their hearts. And so you get to chapter 3 and he goes even further and he says, you know, there's these people, they twist my words and it's frustrating. Uh, are we any better? No. 
first time I read that, I'm like, what are you saying? Paul said, no, we're no better. I've already made the charge. He said, I've looked, look, look what I've written the first two chapters. Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. It is written. Now listen to this. This is because this is the foundation of this. There's no one righteous. He's not saying present company accepted. No. He's saying there's no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's honest assessment of the human race. We have to just sort of let that soak in. Not, and Paul's saying, no, he's not, he's not exempting himself. He's not exempting the Jews. He's saying, this is, this is the human race. And the law, whatever it says, he says it says to those under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So that's a, you have to, you have to let, sink in the bad news uh, before you can hear uh, what Paul says, because then he says, but now there's a, new, there's a righteousness that comes from God that's been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. It's tempting to say more on chapter three. Chapter 4, we can learn about David and Abraham and how they, they help us understand this new righteousness that comes from God and not from not from us. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So now there's another dimension to this. Not just how we, uh, our conscience, uh, which has to be educated, but our culture. I was raised not as a Jew, but as a Gentile, and as a, not even a, as a materialist, and not even any kind of religion that admits to being a religion. <laughs> and so what does Paul say? The only way is to die. It's the only way to escape who we are. The wages of sin is death. We can't, you know, just try harder, make things better that way. Paul says some absolutely astounding things because he says, you know, the law, when you really understand it, is way above 
what we think. And if you've ever read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, you, you've heard that it said, but you know what? You didn't understand. It's, it's bigger than that. And I think the whole human race has underestimated God. We think he's just a little bit better than we are. But the truth is that he's infinitely better than us. And we have a hard time understanding what the fear of God is. I remember when I was a graduate student, uh, the great Stephen Hawking came to our department. And uh, we graduate students were afraid to talk to him in the fear of Stephen Hawking. Because he was very bright. And we didn't want to look stupid in front of him. But I remember at the time, because at the time I was memorizing Romans, and I remember at the time thinking, how much more should we be afraid to walk into the presence of God? But So Paul says, well, then how can we live this Christian life? We said, well, and he tells us in chapter 6, if you die with Christ, you'll live with him. So this call to obedience that comes from faith is called to die and to live a new life. He says, well, yeah, this is how it'll work. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So he's calling us to life according to an entirely new spirit. And we have to die to everything that once bound us. Chapter 7. He's saying, look, this is how it works in the law. You know, a woman is married, but then if her husband dies, then she's released from the law of marriage, and she's not an adulteress if she marries somebody else. It's the same way. You have to die to what once bound you so that you can live to God. And he uses that same language in our passage today. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. In other words, everything we are now is in God. We belong to Him. And so there's no problem in the Christian life that can't be solved by being crucified. But this is important because... um, The Christian life is harder than it looks. If you think today the Christian life is something that you can just do if you try hard, I think you haven't understood it. But the beautiful thing is that when you die... And then the only life you have is the life of Christ. You're at peace with God. And no one can condemn you. How much less do we condemn one another? So Paul's exhortation, really, is to just asking us to live as Christians. Now the question is, obviously, why is this necessary? I remember 
thinking that when I when I became a Christian in as a halfway through my sophomore year in college, I thought I, I noticed actually a huge change in my way of thinking. But to my chagrin, I realized I was still a sinner. And I thought, now how do I endure my own process of change? And I recommend that, and let me just, I don't know if it would, be, if it would bless one person as much as it blessed me, it's worth saying. <laughs> Memorize the book of Romans. In the process, I began to, to grow, to change. But I realized that this is going to take my entire life. In fact, I remember going for a walk as a graduate student and praying and realizing, what are my prospects of success as a, living as a Christian? And I'll tell you, my honest assessment was, I have a 0% chance of success, given the magnitude of what God is calling me to. But then it hit me. But wait. The life that I have in Christ is God's power. Yes, I will fail, but God cannot fail. And so when Paul says, yeah, to his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand, he's literally saying the power of life in him that will carry him is from God. And so he cannot it's as it says in the Psalms, you know, that though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So that brings us up to our exhortation. None of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And we belong to each other as well. But Paul asks us a question here. So you then, sorry, why do you look down on your brother? Well, why do you judge your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Well, I can tell you why I would have judged my brother back then and even now. This really is where the rubber meets the road, and I think this is the application I would like to give to us this morning. We live in a world where everything's divided. And the reason it took me two years to get, walk into a church was I, was I was afraid that I would be associated with those people about whom I'd heard only negative things. And uh, if you're on the left or on the right in the political spectrum in America, uh, you can, uh, there's a lot of demonizing of the people on the other side. And, and, and there's a temptation to say, you know what? Mm. Yeah, maybe they're Christians, but boy... It's embarrassing to be associated with them. So we despise them in our hearts or we judge them. I think that this text um, 
It speaks to us. And Paul explains why we need to think about this. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So there was one other, one other anecdote I was going to mention, and that is one of the first Christians I met that I knew was a Christian was a Chinese Christian named Ren. And he asked me this question. We were good, we were, did homework together and were friends, and he was very quiet, very polite. I didn't know much about his, his personal life. But then once, out of the blue, he just said to me, Fred, um, one day you're going to stand before God, and you're going to have to answer for yourself. What will you say? I was stunned. I didn't, I, it's out of the blue he said this to me. And I thought about it, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not a very good person, but I've tried. And he said, you won't stand. And I was, I was offended. <laughs> I thought, I, got, I was angry. But there was this voice in my head saying, hold your tongue, hold your tongue. So I held my tongue, and I just listened. I asked him to explain, and he did give me a brief gospel explanation. And looking back, I can see that it was the Holy Spirit. See, you can use reason and faith together. It was the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? First of all, the Holy Spirit was kindly telling me, Fred, don't fall on your face, don't fall on your face over stumbling over the stumbling stone. Yes, let it break your heart. But the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So the Lord was was doing a work through that wren. And I, I think he, I thanked him later for what he said, but I think he always felt he did nothing. I don't think we should ever consider that what we did is, is nothing. But the other thing that I know is the Holy Spirit is that it was the Lord telling me, this is Ren, my servant. Don't hurt him. And I think we need to look at and realize, because we don't even know who God's servants fully are. We should have the fear of God should not only affect how we treat one another in the church, but everybody. So now, if you ask me the question, I think about being in God's presence, and I have a hard time wanting to say anything at all because I just know that God already knows. But this is what I would say, and this is from Galatians. It's from Paul. Because Paul says this throughout his letters, right? He said, or... You died and your, your life is hidden with Christ and God. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow. But I'll end with uh, Galatians. 
where Paul just states categorically, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained any other way, then Christ died for nothing. I think that's the answer to our Amen.